The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Rebel Podcast. P Nate, Elder P, Wetsy, Garage Mahal. Can I just say this is one of my happy places? This is a nice happy place. That we, is true. This is year six of the Rebel. Is it Park. really? Yeah. Oh my word. We've been doing this for six years. Wow. The first one was like I think it was the end of the year, 2017. Wow, two, that's that, crazy. Isn't that insane? Think of all the iterations. Like there was the early on we got connected with like the two thieves and the layman's cup, and we did the whole Berean Media Network thing. And then remember we got into like we did a lot of videos. We'd actually love to get back into doing that, but. That's an Antioch project. <laughs> Remember we'd do like a big movie would hit or something would happen yeah, in the yeah. news. We'd come in like reporters and do like videos and stuff. Those were awesome. Or like spot the lie on like movies and stuff like that. And then we went through the whole like Reformed Rebel Network where we had all the podcasts that were all under the same banner. Remember Ben Emery and the Van Brimmers and everything. So it's just been like, and now we're part of the Fight That Feast Network. It's just funny to think through the iterations and it's been six years. Wow. Is that crazy? Yeah, that is crazy. I, I thought of that just as I was starting to talk about like, how many times have I said, welcome back to That's the That's crazy. I'm running out of things to say. And now six like, years later, Ben Emery is an East Coaster, right? If you're still listening, Ben, I don't know if you get internet out there. I don't think I, he does. There's chicken farming. He does all this weird <laughs> stuff. Like, Ben, we miss you. If you want to come back and do the podcast for what was his hardcore history kind of podcast for us. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. What was it called? I, Redeeming History. Rede- yeah, that's exactly oh, what it was called. Yeah. Mm. So, Ben, I hope you've been uh, storing up episodes. <laughs> we can release them one at a time over the next six years. <laughs> now, you brought up Ben Emery. Two things always come to my mind when you, when you talk about Ben Emery. Okay. One that he re- always reminded me of the guy from Prison Break. Yeah. Because um, he that's had the buzz tattoo. That's a good, yeah, yeah. But like, good. it just always made me think of that guy. Yeah. Um, and the big giant back tattoo. Did he? No, I'm just, <laughs> just, <laughs> totally kidding. I'm totally <laughs> kidding. I like how anybody who doesn't know Ben Emery right now is <laughs> like, like can we just skip this? They've just done 34, 34. Um, and then he was so passionate about the fact that we needed to preach chapterly in through scripture. Don't preach verse by verse. It's always got to be the chapter, the whole idea. You should be really reading the whole book. It's like, I think you're right, but like <laughs> practically, I don't know how we would do this. And I remember one time, I think was it not a, uh, was it Galatians when you finished preaching Galatians where you just actually did read Ephesians, the whole book? That was Ephesians. Yeah. It was Ephesians. Yeah. And I remember being like, that was like, it only actually took like 20 something minutes, but it was like, yeah. that was actually kind of awesome. Yeah. At the end of the sermon series, we pre, I, I read the entire book of Ephesians and then just kind of pointed out a couple of things at the end, but uh, that was like the most of the sermon. So let me ask you, um, we're just doing admin again on the, how do you, how do you, how would you feel about if a pastor did this? I'm not thinking I'm going to do this, but I did think about doing it briefly for like one of the youth talks where it was just like, just go up and literally just read first John, but like kind of preach all the way through the book. Like don't change any of the words, like 
preach just the text though all the way through because it is a coherent argument all the way like like you saying like pause and talk about it no like, just like literally go up and just like 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 you were paul reading it. it and like obviously people know yeah, and good. like i kind of feel like that's a kind of a, would be kind of a cool thing to do at some point not every time but like because it, it is just the word of god and that's better than anything i'm gonna say that like, is true that is like, true so anyway. yeah go for it go who for are it. we though um, rebels yeah rebels six years in Rebels. Um, It's actually fitting that we are recollecting and feeling nostalgic because this comes at sort of a bit of a transition point. Not, I mean, not a huge transition point, but one of the things that we want to do is we kind of want to talk a little bit about how a little while ago I got a position with the Ezra Institute as the Canadian director. So I'm working with Joe Boot at Ezra as well as at the church. And so we wanted to kind of link with their podcast a little bit and try to work together a little bit. They're also part of the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. We're not going anywhere in terms of that regard. They've been the podcast for cultural reformation for years. And our tagline has always been engaging culture with a biblical worldview. So kind of what we wanted to do is just kind of rebrand things a little bit. So if they're the Ezra podcast for cultural reformation, we can be the rebel podcast for cultural engagement. And, you know, Joe is obviously one of the smartest guys. He's the smartest guy I know. And one of the smartest guys there is. I feel personally attacked. (laughs) (laughs) Triggered. So they often talk about philosophical ideas. They often talk about the theological roots of some idea. And Joe is obviously, he can link anything to paganism. <laughs> and uh, and so he often is, is kind of uh, talking theoretically about a whole lot of stuff. And so we just thought like sometimes uh, it's helpful. You know, Greg Bonson, he was able to take Van Til, who wasn't necessarily accessible to everybody, and sort of explain Van Tilian apologetics to a whole group of people that Van Til wasn't actually accessible to. So we, we hope to do the same thing with Joe Boo. Right, we, we want to take Joe Boot's lofty thoughts and we want to bring them down and, and feed them as crumbs to the masses. <laughs> you ever seen The Dark Knight Rises? Of course, of course. So Bane, he's like, I take, I take this back, this freedom, and I give it to you, the, the people. people. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> So we yeah. take boot and we give it to you, the, the people. people. That's like, right. That's right. So that's, yeah. So we just kind of wanted to talk. And, and so we, as a bit of a transition episode, so we'll, we'll actually like, and this helps us because we often decide what we're going to talk about on the way to the recording studio. That's if we don't decide it right when we sit down. So uh, it'll actually help us a little bit because we'll be able to kind of follow some of their uh, more careful planning <laughs> and kind of talk about maybe some of the things. So if there's any Ezra, I know we have a lot of listener overlap. If there's When they went through Thomism or any of that kind of stuff, if there's any of those podcasts that you want to ask the question, like what does this look like practically for for me, the, the stay-at-home homeschooling mom, for me, the bricklayer, like what does this look like in my everyday life? How does this help me be a better father or leader in my home or, or husband or whatever, then ask us those questions. We're, we'll we'll kind of do that a little bit. Um, but we kind of thought it'd be cool to start this this little bit of a transition with just a, another trip down memory lane. Don't worry, we won't talk about Ben Emery anymore. We do kind of want to talk about just, I guess, the influence of Joe on us, um, particularly through his work, The Mission of God, because that was really our introduction to Joe. I was on uh, uh, their podcast last week, and I was talking a little bit about just uh, how the mission of God impacted me and my my pastoral ministry. So you and I were actually on vacation together when I first read the mission of God. You remember this? We were in northern Michigan at a cottage, and I brought the mission of God with me. I think we were two weeks vacation at the time. I think it was before I, we, Colleen and I had kids too, right? So it was like a very low key vacations. I don't normally get through a work quite as uh, substantial as the mission of God anymore, but I brought that. And I remember it was just kind of blowing my mind and you weren't working at the church or an elder at the church at the time, but obviously we always talk theology and stuff. So I re- I read the mission of God and in a lot of ways, the mission of God. So for me, 
you know, I was already reading the Puritans and some of the reformers and stuff like that. And I just finished reading The Puritan Hope, where he's talking about how we've taken Puritan theology, like the reform theology and that sort of stuff, but we haven't taken their missiology, their their eschatology. And so the Puritan hope is all about the the great reality that post-millennialism was the great hope that was the driving force of the Puritans. And so anyway, I was I was kind of loaded up with all this stuff. I was already post-millennial. I was I was theonomic in my thinking, kind of a general equity theonomist. But there were all these thoughts in my mind that hadn't really connected, but I had this, this vision that had sort of been given to me by the guy who mentored me, Mike, in that God's overall mission for the world and, you know, optimistic eschatology and all these kinds of things, reformed theology and, and uh, missiology. And then I read The Mission of God, and it was like it connected all these dots that were sort of floating in my mind. And really what The Mission of God is, is, is that idea of like the law word of God has something to say to every sphere in life. So in that work, he takes the mission of God, God's ultimate end for the world, that his glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And what does it look like for that to happen in the sphere of medicine, in the sphere of education, right? In the sphere of politics, in the sphere of ecclesiology in the church, in the sphere of art and film and and all that kind of stuff. It was sort of the first time that I had somebody systematically sort of take that optimistic eschatology and explain how that impacts our vision for every sphere in life. And and it was actually the first time in connecting that, because I I was also influenced by Doug Wilson and that sort of thing, but it was the first time actually reading The Mission of God that I I really grasped what Doug Wilson's been trying to do. Their church mission statement is all of Christ for all of life. And that's sort of pithy and, and good, but then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I get what it's saying. I get what that means. And it revolutionized my ministry because suddenly you're not just the pastor who's trying to connect every Bible story to the gospel and do an altar call, right? And that's that sort of T4G gospel coalition mentality of like, oh, we just want to be gospel-centered. We bring everything back to the gospel, everything back to evangelism. But suddenly now I'm preaching to people in my congregation who are doctors and who are teachers and who are business owners and who are writers and who are artists in various ways. And I'm actually helping them understand how the mission of God can be fulfilled and how their sphere of influence can be put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. It was totally revolutionary for my ministry. And I remember making you and my father-in-law, who were both on vacation with us um, at the time, I'm like, you have to read this book. And then you did. And and really at at that time, that was sort of like... I would say, just as I look back at the timing, I don't know if it has anything to do with this, but to me, that was really when God birthed in you a desire for vocational ministry, eldership, church leadership, and all that kind of stuff. Is that accurate, or is that just me looking back and rewriting history? No, that would be accurate, I would say. Um, now, that along with other things. Of course, yeah. did, yeah. did that. You basically said everything I was going to say in terms of like what was very helpful for with the mission of God was... A lot of the things that we, like theological beliefs that we have, do seem pie in the sky at some points, like post-millennial, like, because we're not living it right now. Like, we're trying to, but it's, I look outside and I don't see right. the world under Which the Which is the biggest, the <laughs> biggest reason people reject post-millennialism. The, in, in that book, uh, The Puritan Hope, there's a chapter called The Eclipse of the Hope, where it talks about, it was literally the turn of the century, the radical change to the family, World War One, and the Great Depression that actually changed people's eschatology. It wasn't biblical exegesis. Theonomy, for example. At that time, when I first read the book, what, why I found it so earth-shattering, so to, so to speak, is that... Uh, 
I would have theologically articulated that I'm a theonomist, and I could articulate what kind of a theonomist I am. How does that apply to a doctor? I couldn't have told you. I couldn't have told you how that actually applies to Christian education more than just kids should be in Christian schools and or homeschooled. Like, and even at that time, I wasn't, I think I even said it on one of those videos that we were in, like that I was actually, I'm not, a, I wasn't a homeschool guy. I was kind of against homeschool. I got saved in the public school system because of missionaries in the public school system. Yep. So I was just like, why would I need to be homeschooled? Like, cause you were letting yeah. your experience dictate your theology, Chris. Basically. Yes. <laughs> so no, but, but, it's, yeah. but the domino that hadn't flipped in my head was the idea that school isn't a neutral that's right. Avenue. Right. That, right? That, the myth of neutrality was, yeah, that's it, a good Exactly, point. right? Like, and so the idea is like everything we're doing is kingdom work or against the kingdom. There's right. no there's, there's no, no in between there. Ground. Now, the mission of God's up, like, it's not an easy work to get through. You know what I mean? There are, it there, takes some work. Like, it was... Long obedience in the same direction. <laughs> <laughs> Very long obedience. It helped take all of these seemingly singular ideas that were siloed in my head and brought them all into like, be like, okay, and here's how it kind of works, which is odd because you mentioned Wilson and I was like, far be it for me to criticize anybody's writing. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> but the one thing I would say is something that like Wilson sometimes struggles from being too pithy and too concise. I do kind of want like at some point in his life, I want him to take all of his works and be like, and now I'm going to flesh it all out. Because right. like now I'm going to write the magnum opus. Exactly, I'm yeah. going to write one book that's a thousand pages. I actually thought that was going to be um, near Christendom. Yeah, I thought that was sort of his, uh, but it was it was kind of recapitulated uh, blog posts and yeah. stuff like that, which is very enjoyable. But it wasn't what I was expecting. Oh, it was great. I yeah. loved it. Um, but I mean, I do want to have him do the Edwards thing, which I realize I'm making myself a hypocrite because I I bemoan every single time. I'm like, why do you take 500 words to say what could be done in 50? <laughs> The mission of God is basically that theology. Yeah, it is. With all the caveats, all of the meat on the bone, so to speak, to the point where I like, I think I've even said this on the podcast too. I actually think it's probably the most important book that's been written in the last like 20-ish years, probably. Yeah, next, um, last couple decades, I think, for sure. Like, by the time you're listening to this, our men's conference has passed. We gave away copies. I remember at the Church of War conference, they gave away copies. Um, and I actually won one of them and I sat back down because I was like, I already have the book. So this, I like let this other young pastor get the thing, even though it made me look like I can't do math, which I was fine with, but because I can't. <laughs> um, but I mean, like, it's such an important book that it's like, we're not just glowing on Joe because he's like a friend. It's just one of those books that I actually think you could write books about the book. And so it would be probably helpful if somebody just sat down, you know, maybe somebody named like Nathaniel would sit down and like <laughs> write a book just being like, here's the like study notes to go along with do, the mission do, of God. Do what we said. Do what Bonson did for Van Til. I'll do that with Joe. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Here's the. Bring him to the uh, people. <laughs> because I think it's that important of a work. To the it's, point where. Do you remember when uh, Sam Storms wrote uh, Signs of the Spirit, which was his sort of concise version of religious affections? Because Sam no, Storms. I'm literally looking for a book that is that. Oh, okay. Sam Storms did one. So Sam Storms wrote a book called Signs of the Spirit, which is essentially a Coles Note version of religious affections. And he did that because religious affections is not necessarily accessible to everybody, but it's so important that every Christian should read it. And so he, he wrote that. But those are the kinds of things. Like there are those books, religious affections, right? Bondage of the Will, Luther, Mortification of Sin, John Owen. Like there are those books that I think are like, you know, I would never apprentice a pastor and not put those books in somebody's hand, right? Like Holiness by J.C. Ryle we did, right? Like that was huge. It's a monumental book in that regard. And I would just say for any any young pastors 
who are trying to like figure out their missiology, figure out their their philosophy of ministry, you got to read Mission of God. Amen. You got to read Mission of God. It's right up there. And the reason, uh, like we said, that I think it's so important is is because it does kind of flesh out a vision for obedience in each sphere, right? Each major sphere in life. And of course, you could you could go on into to smaller and subspheres and all that kind of stuff. But like, but I think as Christians, and and quite honestly, I'll link this back to the pandemic. Is I think what happened during the pandemic is that there were too many pastors and too many churches that got caught not having done their homework. They hadn't figured out what God's vision and what God's law has to say about church-state relations and about politics, right? So Joe actually took, and some of it is actually similar ideas that are uh, iterated in one chapter of Mission of God, and he wrote the book Ruler of Kings, which is towards a Christian view of politics and government. But I think that's the problem, is that many Christians, they might know how to exegete a particular text. They have their systematic theology down. The thing about systematic theology is it's sort of like a spice rack, right? You know where the paprika is and you know where the celery salt and whatever else is, (laughs) chives, I don't know. Um, And yet you know where all those things are and they're all in their own like separate containers. But that's not how life works. It's not how theology works. Theology is, is about understanding the overall mission of God, the overall understanding of redemptive history and applying those things to each sphere of life. And so what I think too many churches hadn't done is they hadn't figured out what is it. And you see it in churches, they'll bemoan the movies like Courageous and and War Room and stuff like that and saying, oh, Christian art is so bad. But if you ask them to articulate a biblical Christian vision for art, they don't know it. And that's part of the whole problem. You have a lot of churches who won't even say from the pulpit that public school is not a faithful option for their children, right? If you can't even say that, like, I, so maybe it's cowardice, maybe it's not having done your homework, but I think the Bible has something to say about all of these various spheres. And so you actually just cannot be a faithful Christian teacher, a faithful Christian politician, a faithful Christian lawyer, if you don't understand God's vision for the particular sphere that you find yourself working in. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Of course. Obviously, I think that was like 2018 when we went on that retreat or whatever. Retreat, retreat to the cottage. I don't know why I called it retreat. It might have even been before that. I don't yeah. even, like, actually, I think it was before Yeah, it must that. have so been. It had to have been before that because it was before we had kids, so. Yeah, so did you understand sphere sovereignty before the book? Because I would say I didn't. I would say not particularly because though I had read Calvin's Institutes at that point and stuff like that. And he obviously articulates that. As you know, like the example I always use is how many times have you watched, you know, that uh, evening of eschatology with uh, Doug Wilson, Sam Storms. Yep. How many times have you watched that? Four or five. Probably. Right. So I probably watched it similar, maybe even a few more. Every single time I watch it, I get something different out of it. And part of the reason is, is because I understand more about each person's position. So when they say things, there's a depth of knowledge and understanding and background that I have that I didn't have the first time I watched it. I just sometimes use that because I often show it to people, show it to a small group or, or whatever. But anyway, same sort of thing. So like, when I read Calvin's Institutes, he articulates sphere sovereignty in his own ways, but that wasn't what I was getting. You know what I mean? The first time I read Calvin's Institutes, I was getting God's sovereignty, you know, the universe is the theater of God's glory, predestination, that sort of stuff. Mm. It wasn't a foreign idea to me, but I certainly didn't have the the full structure of understanding that I said that mission of God was really what sort of put those things together for me. And then honestly, it was it was through Joe's influence that I started reading guys like Dewey Verd and Kuiper and those kinds of Dutch reform tradition. 
reformational thinkers. I wasn't really on that train. I, I again, I was more the reformers reading, you know, Rutherford and, and Rutherford does a great job in Lex Rex um, in articulating sphere sovereignty and, and the whole idea that the law is king. But I would say that I wasn't as solidly planted on sphere sovereignty as I was after that. Yeah. Reason I would say, I don't think I understood it. Like I've read the institutes too. When I thought of it, like it, just mentally, I did a, I did like a, a hoop that my mind went through is like, what well, was easy for them because they had a, a default Christian culture. Right. So even if you like go back to like Calvin's time, like, yes, the Catholic church was an apostate church at the time, but the Christian value was still the universal norm in the world, just applied incorrectly. So like the idea that Christ didn't have something to say in the state is a foreign concept to right. them. My mind was like, well, obviously they would have been that way in their time. But even you get to Edward's time, there's a there's a default presupposition that everybody just knows God exists. The atheist isn't a thing yet. Whereas like I fast forward to today and I'm like, well, our culture is totally pagan. Like there's no way that our government should submit to like and and like how does that apply? And whereas like you get to Boots work and it actually it's like, no, no. What God has said is true is still true, and I and I I cognitively understood that, but I didn't I didn't practically see how that would how it would work. He does a great job of explaining the two kingdoms. Like, Absolutely, yeah, because um, he, like, he tears apart two kingdom theology, yeah. right? In, in terms of, but that idea that there are two kingdoms in the reformed traditional sense, right? But tears apart radical two kingdom theology. Yes. Yeah, I agree, and I think that one of the things that sometimes we forget is that we all come with presuppositions and we're all products of our environment. And so there are times when God uses a different sort of writer for a different sort of time, right? Like I think Paul wrote Hebrews. And I think that by the time he's writing the book of Hebrews, he's writing in a very different climate to a very different kind of person than he is when he's writing Romans, for example. But I think that one of the things that we sometimes forget is that those who laid some of the foundation for what we would call reform theology in the reformers, the Calvins, the Luthers, the the Zwinglis, the Boosers, all of these guys, they were living in a very different time, like you said. And I know this because I've had these conversations with Joe. One of the things that led to him undertaking this massive work of the mission of God was the transition that he said. He was working as a cultural apologist at the time, and, and the transition even in his own lifetime that he saw was a transition from questions about how do we know that God exists to isn't what God said in his word make you a bigot? make him hateful, make him bad, right? So so they went from sort of transcendental arguments or arguments about philosophy of Christians and like evidential sorts of things to moral questions, right? This is what the Bible says. Doesn't that make God genocidal, right? So very, very different in being a cultural apologist when one of your questions is, you know, um, how do we know that it's the, the Christian version of the Old Testament God who exists and not the Allah or, you know, the Jewish understanding? How do we know that God is triune? How could it, you know, those are the questions that he used to get. And then all of a sudden he's starting to get questions about like, God says this about women. Doesn't that make him a bigot? Doesn't that make the Bible a post-colonial, you know, work of misogyny? You know, like all this kind of stuff. And so uh, the arguments were completely different. And I think that God raises up particular men to, to write particular works for particular times. I do. I really do think the mission of God, it's interesting. So I think, I, I could be wrong, one of us, we have these wonderful devices, one of us should just look it up, but I think, I want to say the mission of God was written in like 2014-ish, something like that, 2012, 2014. But whenever it was that it was written, if you read it now, you'll go, did he just write this? 
because like he's talking about like transhumanism and, and AI and the LGBT and queer theory and some of the, the just really dark stuff that we're experiencing now. He was writing about the trajectory of these things. I just find it interesting that you'll read it if you're reading it for the first time and you're just going to go like, man, this is seems prophetic. You're 100% right um, on two things. One, it was published in 2014, February 10th. Look at that. Um, it's crazy what our phones can do. Eh? It's witchcraft. <laughs> and then two, like what you're saying is articulating something that I think what I was trying to say about like it's an important book because I think there's a timelessness of, well, obviously of God's word, but of, of works that speak in like, I'm not trying to say it's inspired work. Don't hear that. But like when it expounds so much truth, it's going to be a timely work that like, the hard part with religious affections is that our minds no longer can read the way he's speaking. It's not what he his say his content is perfect. Right. The problem is on our end. And so like the mission of God, I can read it today, eight years or nine years or whatever it is after he wrote it. And it feels like he wrote it for today because it's an important work. And I think that's going to be the same 30 years from now. Hopefully yeah. realizing a Christian worldview will be a little bit more further along than it is currently. But, <laughs> and I think that's one of those things that's what makes it such a important work. Whereas like a lot of books that I read of, of guys that I actually have a lot of, respect, I, I think they're a, a work for today. And that closes when this culture goes away. Right. Whereas like, I think a lot good, of Wilson good, books, I think a lot of. Yeah. And a good example of that is another great book that we gave away at the conference was it's good to be a man, Michael Foster and, and Dominic Nontenic. Great book, but very timely book. It's not going to be a book that lasts and men are going to read 40 years from now because it really is talking to what is needed right now for men who are living today. Exactly. Um, yeah. 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 Good point. Okay. Well, I guess, I mean, the point of this podcast is go read uh, The Mission of God. We're going to take some time over the next uh, couple of weeks to kind of maybe... I have one more question. Can oh, I yeah, yeah, yeah question? go for it. I don't want to keep ripping off band-aids for what happened during COVID, but did you notice that like when the churches that applied God's sphere sovereignty differently than others, yep. I'm trying to be very nice about this, and remained open or whatnot, generally were churches connected to the Ezra Institute? In, 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 in Canada, definitely. In, yeah, in Canada, def, definitely. Yeah. Which presupposes that most of those pastors had probably read or been connected to Joe, like, and heard his theology or has read his theology. Yep. How do you respond to the fact that, I don't know if you noticed this, but during COVID, all of a sudden a whole bunch of book reviews from a 2014 <laughs> yeah. book came out and it was like very critical from a large yeah. opposing stance. So my question isn't, why do you think that happened? My question is like, what is it do you think about, not Joe specifically, but like about this theology mm. that sparks such a passionate reaction? Because to me, I, I remember explaining to my wife, Heather, the concept that there are people who are not theonomists. <laughs> and she was like, but it's God's word. And I was like, yes. And she's like, I don't understand. Like she didn't have a, a category in her mind for... God's law has expired. Like, she was just like, what? yeah. Like, and, and to be fair, I mean, there's, there's lots of people who aren't theonomists who uh, have appreciated the work of the Institute and absolutely, right. Absolutely. And, and there's pastors who we would connect to this group of people who aren't necessarily theonomists. Yeah, yeah. There's people who came to our church during lockdowns who, but, but I, I, I get what you're saying. And, and so I would just reframe the question because I don't actually think it's necessarily about theonomy in particular. No, I was just using that as an example. Yeah. Because I think that became the red herring, right? That became the critique, right? All of a sudden, like, it is interesting that 
CBC article comes out that bashes Joe, calls him the the head of this, you know, Christian reconstruction movement in Canada and, and names the Ezra Institute as sort of the, the bad philosophical seed that seeded all these dissident pastors. And then like that day, the Gospel Coalition reposts some posts that they had months ago about theonomy and how evil and bad it is. Like it did become the red herring. Like we know we don't have to rehash it all. We had local pastors who were naming Joe by name and preaching against theonomy me and taking things out of context. And I mean, it was terrible. And to that, all I would say is I don't think you have to be a theonomist to be within Christian orthodoxy. That's why I, I did that caveat of like, this isn't about theonomy. But I would also just say like, to those of you who are quote unquote concerned about theonomy, right? I would just say, then also be concerned about John Calvin and John Flavel and Samuel Rutherford, like stop doing Samuel Rutherford's pastoral letters for your men's discipleship courses, because Samuel Rutherford was a big T theonomist. Let's be consistent that way. It's not about theonomy. I think at the end of the day, what this is, is I think it comes down to radical two kingdom theology versus an understanding of Christ's sovereignty and lordship over every aspect of creation. Right. So radical two kingdom theology says that there are neutral spheres, right, where the law of God applies to the sacred spheres, but not to the the neutral spheres of secular. So they would look at things like medicine and things like education as neutral spheres. Right. There are neutral facts. Two plus two equaling four is neutral. It's that's not God's truth or Satan's you know lies. That's just you know, neutral space. I would just say that's that's a ridiculous statement. There's no category for no, knowledge or wisdom because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In order to get knowledge, you must fear God. That's what the Bible tells us. I think radical two kingdom theology is awful and, and insidious. But what I would say is that what I think the Institute has articulated consistently for years, and what I think the mission of God uh, sums up so well, is a vision for the lordship of Christ over every aspect of creation. And like we said, he has something to say about medicine. He has something to say about education. He has something to say about politics. And here's the problem. So then you have a bunch of pastors who don't have that all-encompassing worldview, right? That reformational worldview where everything is attached and everything is under the lordship of Christ. If you don't have that vision, that's why I would say that's the thing. It's the lordship of Christ over every sphere of life, more so than it even is theonomy. And I would say, and if you don't have that, then you can talk about neutral spheres and you can say, well, the government is doing this, but the realm of politics is a neutral space. And so we are, as the church to be obedient in that sphere to this and not understanding that God has delegated different tasks to different spheres. And when one sphere tries to swallow up another sphere, it's not just unfaithfulness in that sphere, it's unfaithfulness to God in that sphere. And this is the category that the, that I think a lot of the, we'll just call them the compliant pastors, didn't have. And that is when the government shut down the church, what the government was doing was assuming the headship of the church over Christ. And they don't have a category for that because what they would say is that these were neutral realms and, and some of them might go so far as to say there's some overlap in, in the area of protection and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, what they didn't have a category for is that there are two kingdoms, right? And I get it, two kingdom theology, that, but there is the realm of light and the realm of darkness. There's a kingdom of, of God and the kingdom of Satan. And one is always subservient to the other. And so there is no neutral realm. There is only the category that has been surrendered to Satan and the category that is reclaiming taken ground 
from Satan. The whole reason we're called the Rebel Podcast is because we're nerds and we use this analogy from Star Wars that, you know, the Empire, right, that the Death Star was defeated in the original trilogy. But as we know, the Empire wasn't completely defeated. And so the job of the Christians living this side of the cross, at the cross, death, the great Death Star, was destroyed by Christ. But now it's our job to go into the world and liberate all of the planets that were still under the Empire's control. There's ground to take back. That ground includes education and medicine and law and politics. So I think that's what it comes down to. Amen. So don't blame Nate for that. I asked him the question. So if you have any complaints. I tried to end the episode 10 like, minutes ago. Remember, send your complaints as always to wetlawfer at, yeah, yeah, right. at hotmail.com. Yeah. And also for some bizarre reason, I feel like saying good relations with the Wookiees I have um, to, end the, to end the podcast to just point out how much of a nerd I am. Um, we are the Rebels. I hope that this episode helped encourage you to read The Mission of God if you haven't, mm-hmm. to read it again if you have. And we're going to end now. I'll stop talking. Bye.